Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a leading movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Skyla, and this week, Kanisha, Madeline, and I spoke with Rich Taffel, Managing Director of RAFA Social Capital Advisors and Director of the American Project, a new effort to bring together leading thinkers to imagine new solutions to America's broken political system. Taffel is also a pastor of Church of the Holy City in Washington, D.C., where he is launching a spiritual entrepreneur club. Prior to this, he created the Log Cabin Republicans and author, Party Crasher, a gay Republican challenges politics as usual, directed the Adolescent Health Programs of Massachusetts, and served as assistant to the minister at Harvard University's chapel. Rich is a transformative leader at intersection of faith and politics and even social impact. His experience and insights wowed us. We talked about his eclectic background. He says he's never had a job that existed before he had it. We talked about how political campaigns around gay rights and AIDS have informed his sense of strategy the complexity of cultural translation work, his desire to provide a middle language America can understand. He says that if you want to make the change, you need to bring middle America along. We talked about how his faith and principles of inclusion guide his practice and so much more. We resonated with Rich's counsel to go to the people who you disagree with to find the maps. We'll try. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Kanisha, and I am a rising senior from Queens, New York. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also a facilitator at YVote. And today I'm just really excited to discuss mainly this idea of social entrepreneurship and the kind of responsibility that advocates have and that citizens have in this idea of, you know, creating a better future. And from your background, talking about the intersection of things like faith and advocacy and politics. Hi, my name is Madeline, and I'm a rising high school senior from Brooklyn, New York. In addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a lead civic fellow with our civic forums. And like Kanisha, I'm really interested in discussing how faith and entrepreneurship and social impact, how those intersect, how that impacts you and the work that you do, but also the work that you've done in wellness and health and things like that. Hi, I'm Skyla. I'm a rising senior trauma major at an arts high school in Queens. I'm also a civic fellow in addition to the podcast. And I do consider myself very spiritual. And I do think that for me, there's definitely a strong connection between my faith and civic action. So I'm really interested to hear your perspective and how your faith guides you as well as your principles of inclusion over exclusion in the various fields that you work in. I've got a very eclectic background. I've done a lot of different things. In fact, I've never had a job that existed before I had it. So I've sort of created a a series of uh, jobs my whole life. Uh, I guess we'll start in linear terms. Grew up in uh, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, with a large, loving, caring family. Went to a state college, then went right to Harvard Divinity School, studied theology. Graduated from there, was ordained, and I became assistant minister at the chapel there at Harvard for uh, a while and had a great mentor in the Reverend Peter Gomes. And then for a variety of reasons, which I can go into, I switched into politics. And at the age of 29, I was appointed adolescent health director for the state of Massachusetts with no qualifications, but I had worked on the campaign for Republican Governor Bill Weld, and there were no Republicans in Massachusetts, so I got that job. 
And I managed the school-based and community-based health centers and was able to create the first uh, Gay and Lesbian Youth Commission in the United States and passed the first anti-bullying laws, the first HIV AIDS campaign for teens, among the traditional issues you deal with teens. I was working for a Republican who was extremely good on gay and lesbian issues, better than any Democrat. And so I was getting calls from Republicans around the country who said, what is AIDS? What is HIV? What is gay rights? Like, no one will talk to us. The organizations just protest us. You know, I, I understand what it stands for, but I have no idea. And I need to appropriate bills every year. So the long story short of that, started traveling around the country doing what was called, I called Gay 101 and AIDS 101, which is like, this is what AIDS is. This is what gay people are like. And these people I met with said they had never met a gay person, never met a person with AIDS. And yet they had, but they didn't know. And I left Massachusetts in the Weld administration to start Log Cabin Republicans in 1993. And that was a effort to lobby conservatives on AIDS and gay issues. And that meant learning to be a lobbyist, which I didn't know anything about. And it meant setting up grassroots chapters and a PAC and a 501c4 and a 501c3 and being very political. And it was quite a decade of culture war. So I ended up with my religious background debating fundamentals Christians in a series of debates around the country. And in fact, the Reverend Jerry Falwell, who at the time was a very prominent, since deceased, uh, religious right leader, uh, debated me on Larry King Live and, and sort of launched my TV uh, period. So I did that for a decade. I wrote a book called Party Crasher, and uh, it was just a fascinating experience. And then I started my own social entrepreneur strategy company. And I was really interested in the intersection of doing good in the world, but also engaging public policy for big change. The first project I worked on was getting AIDS drugs to Africa, helped put together a coalition that eventually became known as PEPFAR and took conservative members of Congress and staff to Africa to expose them and educate them on what, what was a Holocaust in the making. And then our U.S. government hired me to and our team to work in Brazil, Jamaica, and Mexico. And that's how I ended up creating a healthcare company in Mexico. Back in the United States, I was very interested in what was being called social entrepreneurship. It really had just been forming. And the governor of Michigan hired me to do the first statewide social entrepreneur competition. And I did it also in Southern California. That was really interesting. Today, I've kind of come full circle in that I've been working in the past few years at Pepperdine School of Public Policy on the future of conservatism. That's called the American Project. I've been working as a pastor again, which I hadn't done for many years. And I'm sitting at the church right now, the Church of the Holy City. I'm also at a social impact company called Markham Social Capital Advisors. And I work with for-profits, non-profits, people trying to make a difference and basically helping create the business plan that would help them to achieve things. And with the policy background, what policy levers could they move to do it? In the civic arena, I've been doing a lot of trainings on left-right dialogue and what I call cultural translation, how to speak to people at different value levels. And I'm writing a book on that. And I sit on the board of Citizens University, which is where Sanda and I met to learn about the great work that you're doing, and I work closely with Citizens University, which is, I think, the premier civil society networking group in the country. I'm really interested in this right-left dialogue that uh, you said that you're you're involved with, mm-hmm. and I'm curious about like your personal experiences with that, because particularly, I think that uh, the direction that our society politically-wise and socially-wise, uh, particularly amongst Gen Z, is that the right and the left are just so drastically different when I personally don't think that they are. And I really 
think it's interesting how you've juggled both conservatism and also tackling more progressive seeming issues. So I just wanted to hear like your experience with that and if you've had any struggle with that and then kind of what you're talking about in terms of this, of this right-left dialogue. The generations of my age are pretty fried. In other words, they're kind of locked in and I don't have much hope that they will change. They're very locked into a what I call a cultural trench war. They're very locked into their side. And I do speak to people your age and it gives me hope because you're still open-minded to the complexity of human beings and the diversity within each of us, which, which if we tap into, we can, we can move across barriers. So I'd like to focus on your age group. Here, here are the big takeaways in my life. I was a young man. I was 24 years old. I had just come out of the closet. I was living in Boston. I was going to Harvard and I was looking in the newspaper and I saw photographs of men in their 30s who were dying. And it was terrifying. And I realized that nobody cared, like literally no Democrat, no Republican. And when I would talk to people about it, they'd say, you know, you kind of get what you get. You deserve it. And religious people said, this is, you know, it's so clearly God's punishment for the homosexual lifestyle. So there was really little interest, no funding, no political strategy. And so it was really game changing for me. I joined a group, what was an AIDS action program. I was a buddy, which meant you visited a person. That's all you did. You visited like once a month or every two weeks. And then you were in a support group. When I did that, I was only like 26. Every two months, most of our buddies passed. That's how uh, devastating this, this epidemic was. And I learned everything about the medical system. I learned about discrimination. I learned about not having a voice. Interestingly enough, I'll just mention this. I had a dream at the time, and it was a tiger that came to me in the dream. And I mentioned that because like, you have a tiger on the wall behind you. And the tiger was coming at me, and I turned and stared at it. And it's always stuck with me as a symbol of when you're afraid of something, stop and look right into its eyes. Do not run. And so that's what I did. And very few people my age did that. But I also realized at that time, to your point, okay, right now the only activism is really radical more. It was called ACT UP. And so it's street protest, much like we'd see today. And I was like, that is not going to win over middle America. In fact, it's going to lock people in. So who is talking to Republican presidents, Republican senators, congressmen, just middle America, middle you know, centrist Democrats? And so that's kind of what moved me into politics was I knew I could translate into that culture. And that's what I did. When I spoke to conservative offices, I would speak in a language they could understand and give them a win in a language they could understand politically. And it was extremely successful. Gay rights and AIDS are probably the most successful uh, social change strategy we've seen in a long time. And it was because we had people, first of all, we had gay people everywhere in every family, every religion, every state, and they were translators in the values of their family. They would say, hey, you know, whether you kick them out or not, they still left an impact. So I was always dealing with people who said, I've got a gay family member and we're not speaking and I really need you to help me bridge that gap, particularly in, among conservatives. So that really opened me up to the reality that if you can translate into the values of the person you're speaking to and make it a win for them to what you're trying to accomplish, it's not manipulation. And if you can treat them with respect instead of contempt, amazing things can happen. And that's really what happened. The AIDS story is a fascinating story. The gay marriage story is fascinating. The gays in the military story. And I was involved in all those, but it was a translation into values that straight conservatives could understand. And the reason those issues won is because middle America moved on them, not just a progressive, it wasn't just a progressive movement. So that uh, I've been using, and I use that on AIDS in Africa and all the projects I work in, I'm constantly translating between um, 
three value systems, primarily traditional values, which you've all heard about, modern values, the enlightenment science, and postmodern values, which you will hear mostly on your campuses. But it's kind of a critique of modernity and of capitalism and of America. And so those are different value systems. And if you can translate into them, you can accomplish amazing things. So I remain optimistic that we can avoid a civil war in our country if we can speak in the values to each other. And I'm doing trainings and I'd like to focus on younger people. So I'd love to work with you. And I'm also looking at faith leaders because they're the last place we have diverse groups politically in the country. And that means of all faiths. So I'm working with a rabbi in Northern Virginia right now and we're putting together something. I myself come from a more centrist background and I think just being able to relate to issues, political issues on both sides has definitely given me the opportunity to translate, like you said, and kind mm -hmm. of like bring voice to middle America, which I think is really powerful because it is something that both sides will agree on uh, to whatever extent. I myself am Jewish and I have considered being a rabbi. I've definitely seen that across religion, there is so much diversity in terms of political beliefs. I, I can just like imagine a council of different religious leaders coming together and just having a discussion about politics and faith and the, the intersection of both and how we can use that to move America forward. And I just think that that would be incredibly empowering. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, the Jewish community, I would say, is more in the lead on this than, say, some of the Christian community, which I'm embarrassed to say. But a lot of the people that I'm working with are rabbis, and they seem to get it better. And in a lot of synagogues that I'm talking to, they were kind of more uniformly one political thing. But because of the last president's positions on Israel, on, on Jerusalem and so forth, they've noticed divisions within the congregation where people are like, no, you know, this party, the Republican Party is going to be... And they've never had that division before. And so it's ripping through all those groups. And so it's just like a family. You have to say, are we going to just kick them out? Are we going to say, go find another synagogue? And these rabbis are, are wrestling with it. They tend to be more on the progressive side, the ones I'm talking to reformed. So anyway, I encourage you on your path, whatever it is, but I think we need more rabbis like you <laughs> and leaders like that. But faith is a really fascinating intersection for the work. What type of parallels do you see between religious leadership, but in more specific, like, organizational religious leadership and your political leadership? And to what extent do you think faith should be incorporated in political settings? So I, I think it's a misunderstanding. We say you separate church and state. And the idea is that what made America very unique in its creation was we did not create a, a religion, American religion. We said, we're going to have diversity. We're going to have the Quakers and, you know, William Penn and George Washington writes to a Jewish community in the United States. And so it was just like, we're not going to imitate the religious discrimination that ripped through Europe and led to the murder of millions of people through various historic periods. So that makes America very cool and very unique. I do think that uh, one of the missing elements in a lot of it for me is that in those stories that I was telling, for example, when I, you know, obviously, if I'm going to educate Republicans on gay and lesbian issues and AIDS in that period, guess who attacked me the most? The gay community, the AIDS community, and, and the Republicans, obviously, the socially conservative religious right. But you get attacked from all sides. The only way I could have done that is having a belief that, that God loved me, that, that, that what these people were saying about me was not true. It's hard not to be fragile. And for your generation, that's something I'm concerned about because I think there might be more fragility. And um, I really want to build more resilience because one thing that people in the public square know when you get involved, there's a lot of toxic people. And what they know is if they're toxic, 
they will scare you away. People just say, I don't want to go back to that precinct meeting. I don't want to go back to that campaign. Well, guess who's left? Toxic people. So we've got a lot of toxic people running our political system right now. And they are very good at insulting, shaming, canceling. There's certain narcissism that's dominating our politics that is very little concern for the public good and very much concern for ego. You know, how we get the good people back in, they're going to have to be resilient. So my faith has really given me resilience. I don't, I don't rely on what I'm called and it doesn't rip me down. I don't like it. It's also a moral compass for me. When you get good at this in the political realm, there's incredible opportunity to get into the political infrastructure system and make a lot of money as a lobbyist or whatever. And so you have to be guided by a principle that's bigger than money and bigger than yourself. And so spirituality does that for me. I'm fortunate in my tradition that I'm in now, which is called Swedenborgianism. It's very unusual, but it happens to be extremely uh, ecumenical. It believes all faith paths are good. And so when I'm working with people of different faiths and I do a lot of ecumenical work, I'm not just saying, oh, you know, it's great that we're different. I'm really like, yeah, I love your path. And I truly do. And I don't seek to convert or get anybody on my path. It's just, I really want to help people in their path. Like in my sermons, I don't, I rarely, almost never think I've advocated a policy position. So I do think that's a place where I would not use that. But I will take, I did a series on topics ministers don't preach about. And what do they pick? Trans, abortion, guns, money in politics, money in general. And so I do often put my cards on the table and I'll say, this is how I see it. And then half of our service is a dialogue. I don't have all the answers. I'm, I'm seeking to guide people. And this is what I've learned through my education. Um, so that's kind of how I approach that. But I think the downside of saying separation of church and state is a lot of good people stay out of politics. And one of my heroes is Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who really did his work from a spiritual perspective and made a huge difference in our country. And a lot of the abolitionist movement and so forth and the suffrage movement, a lot of them had a religious component to them that was good for the country. So I rarely tell people of different viewpoints, they don't have a right to voice their thing because I think they should have a, a right, even when I disagree. But if I don't want them to dominate, I need to be engaged in the public square. Yes, thank you. And I love your point about even disagreeing with people, you still need them in the discussion to have a constructive discussion. I think that's really important. And I feel like this toxicity by canceling people or by um, excluding people from discussion, I feel like those people don't get educated either. So I really like that point. My first Citizens University event, I sat next to Annabelle Park, who created the coffee party in reaction to the Tea Party. So very, very, very progressive. Long given up on church. But the long story short is she and I developed a friendship following that. And we don't agree on much at all politically. She would, she would say she's a socialist, but we, we really came to love each other. She, but long story short, she's now president of my church, has joined the church, become president. And we, did it, we do a podcast where sometimes we just share Twitter feeds and I show her what I'm reading and then she shares it. And they're completely different just to educate each other's audience. So one of the things that she keeps stressing, and you reminded me of it, she says, I don't agree with Rich, but I completely, deeply care about him. And he helps me you know, guide in my own life. That's, I think, what we're looking for. We're not looking for agreement. We're looking for respect and curiosity. When someone says something really different politically over and over, people I like who are kind people, I'm kind of curious how they came to that conclusion. Maybe I'm missing something. And as I've gotten older, I'm much older, right? So I've changed a lot of my positions. When I was younger, I was much more like free market will solve everything kind of uh, Republican. And um, I got in social enterprise because it doesn't solve everything. Those are just changes you go through. 
And I've, I've been influenced by many people I disagree with. Yeah, um, something that really stuck out to me when you were speaking was when you said that your faith kind of offers you resilience. Um, and when we are on this podcast, a lot of times we're talking about the different things that kind of go into creating someone's like political views and political ideology. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about growing up as you like came into a person that encourages social entrepreneurship, but also someone who's very deeply involved in religion and their faith. How did you know your faith inform your political beliefs and what you wanted to do in the social sphere? What do you wish people kind of understood about that intersection between faith and politics? Because I think it's often something that's like very antagonized and doesn't always have to be. One thing is in my faith tradition, we would say everybody's created in the image of God. So whoever you're looking at or screaming at or fighting with was also created in God's image. In the Christian tradition, you're, you're told to love your enemy. That's a high spiritual thing. So even when I was debating people or really wanting to hate them, I really worked at like a spiritual discipline of saying, I completely disagree with these people. If they accomplish what they want to accomplish, it would be very bad, particularly for gay people. But I want to love them too. I had been raised in a more evangelical church part of my childhood, a Baptist church. And sometimes I would just remember my fourth grade Sunday school teacher, Mrs. Martin, because Mrs. Martin was very, very socially conservative. And she taught me the books of the Bible, and she taught me the, these great lessons, and she cared about me. And I think to myself, these people, they could be like Mrs. Martin. And I wouldn't agree with Mrs. Martin. She's since passed, but I wouldn't agree with her views. But I'll, I remember the love that she had for me as a kid. So I kind of often thought about who do I know or what part of me could I think about and kind of relate to where they're coming from? The, the image of God, love your neighbor, and humility. True spiritual life, it requires humility. It should never lead to arrogance, and it should never lead to condemning people, because the more you grow spiritually, the more you're aware of your own faults. The more you're able to do that, the more you're like, you don't really judge other people. That is really, that's how it's informed by politics. How it led to social entrepreneurism was I was very frustrated with the church, and I have, I've been frustrated with the church my whole life, and I'm interested in the teachings of Jesus and that the commandments are like, basically, this is true in Judaism, it's true in Islam. It's not what you say, it's what you do. And so many religions have got wrapped up in certain things that you say, you know, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you say this, that's not the message as I interpreted. It really is, do you love your neighbor? And you can only love God if you love your neighbor. So you've got to do something. I've been frustrated with church, the organized religion as being very insular. And I looked around at these young people that I was working with in nonprofits. They wanted to be social entrepreneurs. They wanted to put a business model for profit to doing good. And I said, these people, these young people, many of whom have no faith perspective, some did, some didn't, but they want to love people and they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to actually like take this loving, caring thing for the homeless, for climate change, for getting low-income kids in the school, for healthcare systems. They didn't know how to make it happen. It's not my long suit. My degree is in theology. So it's crazy that I'm teaching business classes, but I really needed to understand how you accomplish it. And if they said, well, I want to do this politically, I could do that because of what I did in politics. And now if they say uh, at the firm that I'm at, I'm surrounded by 300 accountants because I get very complex challenges and we can put together a, a solution for profit, nonprofit, the different types of nonprofit, the different types of for profit that will put together a plan so that you can be sustainable and accomplish change. And one of my big frustrations is that we don't have a sustainable model on the social side as we do on the business side. It's very difficult.
to be a nonprofit or a social entrepreneur. So that's what brought me to it. I will say I, I, I became a little disillusioned with social enterprise in the last decade because so many of the young people were like, I'm the best clean water program. No, I'm the best, I'm the best. And they actually started imitating businesses in the worst sense. They started trashing each other's programs. And so that's why I've been working at this church that I'm at now on a spiritual entrepreneur program where you develop your spiritual life, whatever that is. So you get your moral compass. And then we marry it up to any business plan for what you're trying to accomplish. So, you know, how, do you, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to buy a house? How are you going to buy a car or whatever you need to do in your life? You should have that. You shouldn't have to choose poverty to do good. At least that's my theory. I'm looking at how do you solve problems? And if I just preach about it all the time, and I'm constantly just preaching, everybody, you should love your neighbor. You should, but I'm not teaching people how to do that on a daily basis. Then uh, we're missing something. So that, that's, how, that's how I came into those areas. I feel like there will never truly be a separation of church and state just because whether it be religion or just, you know, our own personal experiences, these really defining parts of our identity is going to influence everything that we do, right? And that, of course, will bleed into politics because politicians are still humans who have been influenced by so many different parts of their lives. And the only thing that we can do to achieve the humility, not the arrogance that you said, was that just to have as much representation of different experiences and beliefs as possible. In regards to business, I, I took a economics and a course in marketing. First thing that my teacher told us is that when you're making a business plan, the first thing that you want to look at is what is lacking in your community and what is a problem that needs to be faced. And then the second thing that you do is how can you build empathy to understand the problem that needs to be addressed, but then make sure that you're adequately addressing that issue in a way that will not just benefit the consumer, but also person building the business and create that mutually beneficial just source of empathy. I've never really considered that as something that could impact politics or be a political or socially political uh, movement. It is kind of interesting politically. Well, my investors tend to be conservative businessmen. They love the idea that it's a social business because they're capitalists. So that language resonates. The social stuff, yeah, maybe you'll work it out. Maybe you won't. I don't know if it's really true. You're a bleeding heart rich, but it sounds good. And then it's more my progressive side that's excited about the solution. We're really thinking in a more complicated way now about business. You mentioned like what's good for the customer, what's good for the seller. We're starting to look at what's good for the employee, what's good for the community, what's good for the environment. And we're looking at may, you know, many, many stakeholders in one situation in any deal that we do, and how's everybody benefiting? And I think if we don't do that, we're going to create a kind of a polarization, win-lose, uh, wealthy elite that's going to be very unhealthy for the country and could lead to class warfare even. What are these strategies or tips you would recommend for my generation to have this resilience you talked about, even if they're not affiliated with faith? So this is one way of answering your resilience question. There's a German theologian uh, who opposed Hitler, Lutheran theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a role model for me. And he, uh, he said, when a madman is driving through the town square with his car and he's hitting people, you can bandage the wounded. But at some point, you have to grab the steering wheel. What we're doing so often is we're just bandaging people. And that just means the people we get in touch with. 
And that leads to a lack of exhaustion to your point. So one way we can think about resilience is if we look at systems change. In the case of AIDS, we're doing a fairly decent job at some point of taking care of people who are dying every two months and we had that caring thing. But at some point we needed drugs and at some point we needed funding to, to do that. So you have to kind of think in those directions, I think, to make systemic change. On the more personal level of resilience, I think with social media and the internet and growing up on it, as you all have, and you'll be like the first generation, so you're sort of like the guinea pigs for this thing. So much of your value is coming from what people think and comment and say, and so much of your life is an illusion of projecting to everybody of what you look like. And we're seeing this particularly young among young women. It makes people quite fragile, you know? And so I'm basically uh, saying, what can you develop in your own life as far as, yes, a spiritual path of some kind, if that's what's right for you, but physical activity, are you taking care of your physical self? Has anybody ever talked to you about meditating or wellness in general? Do you keep a journal? And there's a lot of things that almost all traditions agree. But knowing that I, you know, kind of what I said earlier, that you're you're good as you are. And when you get those arrows shot at you because you're trying to do some change in the world, that you say, that's not true. Because I know who I am. Instead of, you know, the brutality. And I think with the internet, it's gotten more brutal. Um, and people are afraid. So a lot of people are just like, don't say anything in school anymore. A lot of young people say, I'm not going to comment because if I comment, it could destroy my career. That's not resilience. We're not having dialogue. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of persuading people, not canceling or rolling people that you disagree with. When you cancel someone or you roll them just by force on both sides, what you do is you suppress the issue. Those problems will emerge again in very bad ways. So it's very important to persuade people and be resilient in that way. I read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty and something that like really struck me about that book, he has this whole like thing about encouraging disagreement and seeking disagreement because at the end of the day, that's one necessary for a healthy political society, but it's also necessary for us to develop our own viewpoints and strengthen our beliefs and why we believe those things. I just wanted to ask you like, what you think the value is of challenging your own beliefs, as well as actually engaging in those productive discussions with others and you know, just your personal experiences with that and why that's been so helpful and formative to you and the work you do. When young people come to me and they say, I don't really agree with what you say and I don't agree with what my parents taught me. And I always say, good, because you can't inherit your faith. You've got to reject it. At some point, you've got to reject and you've got to doubt things that your parents gave you. Or what you'll do is you'll have a very fragile faith. You'll inherit it. You'll act it out. You'll pretend it. But doubt of everything is a good thing. You know, question in a respectful way. You don't want to be completely annoying to your loving parents. But, you know, whoever is in your life, you know, who's, who's your mentors and your advisors and, and your family, they're going to give you the best they can. You've got to go out and test it for yourself. And then you've got to make it yours. And that means doubting things and questioning. It means talking to people. So instead of today, right now, when we hear somebody who has a different political view, we kind of like, oh, I can't believe they have that view. And I really, I don't know if I can still be friends. And I don't know if I'll go to that dinner, that family event with that uncle who speaks. And I'm saying, oh my gosh, be curious. Why they're not idiots. They're not idiots. They came to this conclusion for a very thoughtful reason, probably. And it may be in the sequence of decisions that they came to it, ask them, ask them and don't 
be condescending. And I, that's how I approach it. I'm, I, I, and, and as far as how does it apply in my political life, when I'm going to do social change on something, instead of going into the person that I'm, you would consider my enemy or my opposition that I need to win over, there's always the, the enemy that's just, you're gonna just debate and you can find my debates online of scream, people screaming at me. And so that's, that's one thing, but it's not most people. Most of the great strategies came from asking the person I needed to persuade. And I would go to the hill, I'd say, look, I need to do this. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to get this bill through. You know how to get things through. What would you recommend if you were doing it? And they gave me the maps and they gave me a world I didn't understand. And so if I had just said, you're an idiot because you don't support my legislation and you're a bigot and you don't care about people with AIDS and they're gonna die thanks to you, I would not be persuasive and shouting and screaming and protest. That, that's where I'm different than most of what you're gonna be hearing from other people. I think it's generally ineffective in my experience. Uh, when was the last time you were shamed into a position that cha you changed that lasted? People don't respond to shame or humiliation. They respond to being valued, being listened to, and being authentic. Just be yourself, and that, that's very powerful. So that those are the examples that I would say in my life where I've, you know, when someone's different and I literally now am totally curious, you know, if I'm at a thing and someone's in a cult or something, I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to hear all about this cult, you know, whatever it is, I want to learn all about it. I'm just fascinated by diversity. And if you are a smart person, you came to join this cult, I want to learn more about it. And, you know, so there's nothing kind of off limits for me. I'm just a very curious person. That's all for today with NextGen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for NextGen Politics. <laughs>